Good morning, Lighthouse. My name's Isaiah. Uh, first of all, I just want to say how awesome that was. <laughs> I'll be reading the scripture today. It's from Hebrews 1, 1 through 9. It says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. <clears throat> for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, <clears throat> your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Thank you, Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that, um, that you would be able to reveal the greatness of Jesus to us in a way that would... Uh, move us, Lord, um, especially if we're in a place where we kind of think of Jesus as just a, a great teacher, a great moral example, uh, and that kind of thing. And uh, certainly if that's our opinion, we vastly underestimate him. And so I pray that uh, you would correct that this morning through the scripture. And so speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to see you all this morning. Uh, it's week two of our December-long series, Unwrapping Christmas. We're focusing on Jesus and what it means for God to have become a human being. And uh, next month, just a heads up, we're going to begin a new series in Colossians. We're calling the supremacy of Christ, and so we're going to keep focusing on Jesus, uh, and I'm really looking forward to that. But last week, we looked at the star prophecy uh, from Numbers chapter 24, and a very interesting passage. Balaam, the enigmatic prophet, after failing to curse Israel, remember that's what Balak, the king of the Midianites, hired him to do, was pronounce a curse upon Israel. Uh, he failed to do that, and after he failed three times, King Balak was mad, and Balaam had one final thing to say to him. They're looking, they're on Mount Nebo slash Pisgah, they're looking down upon the Jordan River Valley. Israel is encamped in that valley, so thousands and thousands of people, a couple million people probably. They're looking down upon that big group of people in the valley, and Balaam says this, I see him, not now, 
I behold him, but not near, a star, a scepter, a God king will come out of that people. It's an amazing prophecy about Jesus Christ coming out of that group of people encamped in the Jordan River Valley and come out of them he would 1,500 years later, born in the Judean town of Bethlehem, not far from there. So let's ask the question, just who is Jesus Christ? How great is he? Can his greatness be overestimated? C.S. Lewis uh, famously said, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And yet, that's exactly where lots of people land when it comes to Jesus. Lots of people, especially in our culture in this time, they, they develop what they consider to be a more moderate, kind of a reasoned opinion about Jesus. They like him. They admire him. They might even try and emulate him in their lives. But they don't really like him. <laughs> they like their idea of him. They've actually stripped away the offensive things that he said and that the Bible says about him, and they've created a, a more manageable, tame, kind of a emasculated Jesus. Deconstruction has become kind of a popular word in our culture. It's in the cultural lexicon right now, and it's used to describe people who once had faith, maybe they grew up in the faith, but they departed from the faith or they're deconstructing their faith and maybe they end up with some sort of a watered down, more generic, personalized spirituality because they, they question the Bible being authoritative. They question those radical claims of Jesus, you see. You know, there's other people who have had doubts, <laughs> even in the Bible. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 was in prison uh, because he told Herod that it was not okay uh, for Herod to sleep with his uh, brother's wife. 
And, uh, and so John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. You remember this? Jesus's cousin and his ministry was huge. I mean, John the Baptist was like, he, he, his ministry was viral. It went across the nation and people were flocking to the Jordan River Valley to hear him preach and to get baptized by him. Thousands of people. This guy was the most famous guy in Israel at the time, without a doubt. And he pointed out to everyone as his cousin Jesus was walking up to a big crowd, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John believed in his cousin. He believed in Jesus Christ without a doubt. He admitted that he wasn't worthy to tie the laces of his sandals, that Jesus has to increase, I have to decrease. John said all that, right? So he gets it. But now he's in prison and he's questioning all of it. Some of his disciples came to visit him in prison and John the Baptist asked them to go to Jesus with a message from him. And in Matthew eleven two, it says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John was deconstructing. Oh man, I don't, I don't know. Here I am languishing in prison and the Messiah hasn't taken over the world like scripture promised. This is coming from John the Baptist, who, his cousin, who knew Jesus, who pointed to him, pointed him out as the savior of the world. So Jesus says in John eleven four, he answered them and said, go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Listen, the place of blessing is embracing Jesus Christ as he is. There isn't some middle moderate ground to stake out when it comes to Jesus. Listen, Jesus said things like just in, in the chapter before, Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take his cross up and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, my sake will find it. Now that's something a crazed cult leader would say. You need to love me more than your mom and dad. You need to be more faithful to me than to your kids. So either that or they are the words of God in human flesh. There's no in between. There's no, I really like Jesus, I really admire him. This person, Jesus, is demanding that you love him more than your mom and your dad. 
that you love him more than your kids. He's demanding that you give up everything for him. So if you're not a believer here this morning, Jesus' words certainly should challenge you and, uh, and perhaps offend you and certainly perplex you. This seems a little over the top, it may seem. If you are a believer, you've faced that and you've come to realize that he has every right to make those claims and at some point you gladly embraced his rule over your life. Well, if you're in that irrational middle space concerning Jesus, I'm going to push hard to get you out of there this morning. Um, and so our text makes it abundantly clear that you cannot overestimate Jesus. You cannot. However great that you think that he is, he is greater still. However wonderful that you think he is, he is more wonderful still. However powerful that you think he is, he is more powerful than that. However faithful you think he is, he's more faithful still. However merciful you think he is, he is more merciful still. You cannot overestimate him. It's impossible. The writer of Hebrews will show us why underestimating Jesus or mischaracterizing him is a grave error. So the first thing to bring to your attention from our text is that Jesus is the message from God to the world. Jesus is the message. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So, it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God. It, it merely reveals the existence of God as factual. So, the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light and so on. No, no apologetic for the existence of God, just here's how it went down in the beginning. The Bible reveals that God is and that God speaks. He speaks, he communicates. In fact, God spoke the universe into existence. Everything, all material uh, and even spiritual, everything that there is has been spoken to existence by God. Speech is at its core, it's informational. And so when we speak, we're bringing information out of our hearts and minds into the atmosphere. We're, we're bringing that out. And when God spoke, he spoke the things that were in his mind concerning creation. His, his speech was informational, but it was also powerful because he's God. So his word carried not only rational, logical information, but also the power to take that rational information and make things from it. This logic, this order is apparent. It's apparent to scientists who consider mathematics as the language of the universe. 
When scientists study these things, they're really looking at what God has done. There's rationale to it. There's logic. The, the universe is information-based. It's logical. It's predictable. And so the idea of God being rational and logical is what drove the scientists of the 16th and 17th century to their great discoveries, and, and really, which has led us to the modern scientific age. If there uh, indeed is a God who's not some, you know, impersonal force, but a personal being, then it's reasonable for us to think that he would want to communicate with us. And indeed, this is the case. So how? How does God communicate to humans? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it's through various means. So we know from Scripture that God speaks to people through creation, for instance. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, no words where, who, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. So, so to summarize that, every day and every night, what God has created, the stars above, the earth below, is telling every human being in every place over all time in history that God is great. He's powerful and he's wise. Because we are, we are in the midst of God's, we are God's creation and we are in the midst of his creation. We can look at it and go, okay, definitely powerful. We live in a universe that is essentially immeasurable. And so whoever made this is powerful. And there's such a logic to it. There's such precision to it. He's wise. Creation. He speaks through conscience in all people. That's Romans 2. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So God has put in every human being a conscience. It's an umpire that calls balls or strikes. Shows what's right or wrong. And all people have that. God did that. It's a representation of his law, of his character. And it's in all people and has been in all people for all time. And he spoke through prophets. Prophets were people who were specifically chosen by God to speak for him to mankind. And they spoke in various times and in different ways. You know, before the flood, you had Noah and Enoch prophesying, both warned of judgment. Noah warned of the judgment of the flood that would come, and Enoch actually uh, prophesied about the coming of Jesus in judgment. But primarily, God spoke to his covenant people via, uh, 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 to his covenant people through specifically chosen 
uh, people called prophets, prophets. And he spoke, I mean, prophets were an interesting bunch. You think of Hosea and his marriage to a prostitute. It became a, a picture, an illustration of God's relationship with Israel. He spoke through Moses uh, with tablets of stone that God wrote on personally. He spoke through Joseph, uh, through dreams being interpreted. He spoke through Isaiah, through prophetic declaration to the nation. He spoke through Elijah, through prophetic confrontation, and on and on. Various different ways that God spoke. He spoke in a spectrum in the Old Testament. Through creation, through conscience, through specifically chosen people called prophets. And these are all bands of light that gave glimpses into the character and the, the nature of God. He spoke, but it was incomplete. There was more to be said. There was more to be understood about God and his plan and his purpose for humanity. So when Jesus came, he became a prism that collected all those bands of light that were before him, and he focused them into one pure beam to shine into the world. Jesus didn't carry the message into the world. Jesus was the message. Jesus is God's clear message to humanity. In John 14, 8, Philip said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, and that, that'll suffice. We'll be satisfied if we can just see God. And Jesus said, haven't I been with you? Don't you understand yet? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you want to know what the infinite, timeless, eternal God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is God in human flesh. That is what Christmas is about. God spoke perfectly and completely by his Son to the world. Perfect message. So suppose, just for instance, we took a trip to the Smithsonian Institute in our nation's capital, and there under glass, we would see the personally autographed copy of the Gettysburg Address, autographed by Honest Abe himself, and considered by many to be the greatest speech uh, given ever by an American president, but a mere two minutes in length, a very short speech, uh, it's the epitome of the less is more mentality, but we begin reading it and right away, you know, you're reading it and you think, golly, nobody says four score seven years ago. So, so we break open the glass and we get our Sharpie out and we go, 87 years ago, help Abe out a little bit while the security guards find you, see you. They bum rush you and tackle you and cuff you. And you're going, what? I'm just helping Abe out. And they're going, you idiot. You have ruined a perfect masterpiece of communication. You can't improve it. Anything you, you might do to it would only degrade it, would only take away from it. 
And so too, God has spoken masterfully and perfectly to the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't bring the message. He was the message. He is the message. And so any attempts to add to God's masterpiece only degrades it and ruins it. And there are those who say, well, the Bible isn't enough, and we have more information to add. We have another testament, another holy book, another writing, or a magazine that we want you to read that gives you more information. Listen, those groups are trying to improve God's masterpiece. And there are others who say, well, Jesus isn't enough. We've got rules you have to keep and feasts to observe and laws to be under in order to gain God's favor and so on. And God says to them all and to us all, I have spoken perfectly and completely and fully in the person of my son, Jesus Christ, and all you will ever need to know will be found by looking to him and learning to him and learning of him and walking with him. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He rattles off a number of just staggering truths about Jesus Christ. Again, if you're in some kind of middle space when it comes to Jesus, consider what is said about him. The first thing in verse two, it says, he's been appointed the heir of all things. The heir of all things. So Jesus gets everything. When this thing plays out, this age plays out and gives way to the eternal age, who gets it all? Jesus does. When he was here the first time, he was essentially a homeless pilgrim who, you know, didn't have a place to lay his head. He even had to borrow a tomb for a couple of days to get buried. But now the, the will has been documented in red, the will and testament, and he is the heir of all things. And when he comes back again, he will, that will will be put into force. And who's going <laughs> to inherit those all things with him? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So who's going to inherit all things with Christ? The meek. Who are the meek? Those who look to Jesus and live for Jesus. Those who embrace him as he is. You don't try and add to the story or take away from the story or create a Jesus, a manageable Jesus in your mind. That's not meekness. That's called idolatry. It's perhaps the greatest sin of mankind. The Spirit himself, Romans 8, 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He is the heir of all things. And if you're his child today, you are a co-heir with him. So you don't have to sweat it that you might be struggling right now a little bit financially. Maybe it's a little hard to make rent each month. Listen, 
one day you get it all. Hang in there, Christian. Be satisfied in Christ. He's not only the heir, but notice the next phrase. He's the creator through whom also he created the world. So, so here's another reason why you don't want to be in that irrational middle space of, oh, he's a great teacher, you know. No, he's the creator of all things. We'll see this in Colossians, that Jesus created everything that we can see. So that means every, every star, every galaxy, everything in this world, and he's created the unseen realm, which means he's created angels. He's created the fallen angels. That means he created Lucifer. Jesus is the creator of all things. Next phrase says he's the radiator. Now I know that sounds like a vehicle, part of a vehicle, but the radiance of the glory of God, the glory of God is, is the, the essence of God, the substance of who God is. So Jesus isn't merely a reflector of God. He's, he radiates the glory of God. Listen, the, the moon reflects the light of the sun, right? It reflects it. The sun shines upon the moon, and the moon then reflects the light of the sun back to earth. And so at night, we see the sun's light reflecting off of the moon. But in the daytime, we receive the direct light of the sun. It hits us in our face, and it warms us. You can't separate the rays from the sun. They emanate directly from the sun. So too, it's impossible to separate Christ's glory from the nature of God. He's the radiator of God. He radiates the glory. Next phrase, he's the exact imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. So that's a phrase from the first century that's speaking to stamping coins. And a piece of metal would be uh, pounded against a stamp. And the stamp in first century, it had the head of Caesar and thus, when that stamp hit the metal, it would make an exact imprint of Caesar's likeness. And although the, the stamp and the coin were two separate things, they were the exact image. And so Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, I'm the exact imprint. Next phrase, he's the sustainer. The sustainer. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow. Upholds the universe like he's holding it together. Like not used to and did it for a while and now he's taking a break. No, he's doing that right now. And so not only did Jesus create the world and the universe, he actively sustains it. Now it takes a lot 
of force, we are told, to hold all of the positive protons together in all the atoms in the universe. I don't understand all that. But currently, scientists, they speculate at what appears to be the, the, the magic that holds atoms together. They, sometimes they'll call it nuclear glue or whatever. They don't have a, a real scientific explanation for why they hold together. They just know it does. And so listen to what Paul wrote little preview of Colossians 1.16. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this answers the question this morning, why do you exist? You exist for the one who made you. Jesus. Now, listen to this. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. So he's created all things, and now those all things hold together. He is actively upholding and sustaining the universe, sustaining life by the word of his power. That is incredible news for us because that means he's holding you together too. Next phrase, he is our redeemer, verse three. After making purification for our sins. So now all of a sudden, the cross comes in view, doesn't it? So, so the great divider of humanity from their God is sin. Sin separates us from our God. And so, who could possibly purge a, a stain so deep that, that it, it, it's so deep in the character of all humanity that it separates us from God? How can we measure the heinousness of sin? Well, I'll tell you, we tend to, <laughs> we tend to make light of it. We tend to underestimate the heinousness of sin. But I thought one way to, one way to look at it and try and get an idea of how bad sin actually is, is if God has declared our righteous acts as offensive and as filthy rags to him, that's the good stuff we do apart from him, okay? And if the good stuff we do is offensive to God, then what must our sins be? What must the bad things be? And right at this point, we come up against one of those offensive things. How, how dare you say the good things I do offends God? I'm not the one saying it. Listen. Because Jesus Christ is God, he possessed infinite value and worth sufficient to pay for our sins. And so only Jesus, only God becoming man could be that perfect sacrifice. Well, last one, he is our mediator. He is our mediator. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. 
So, so from his humiliation at the cross where he had been beaten brutally and finally nailed naked to a cross outside of Jerusalem, from that lowly place, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And this was the place that, that Jesus was exalted to as a human being. He was exalted uh, after having assumed our nature, suffering in that nature while on earth, then exalted to the highest place uh, of honor in the universe, to the right hand of God. This was the reward of his humility. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And now it says in, oh, uh, Hebrews 7, right around verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So if, if you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus, this great Lord and Savior, this God become flesh, is praying for you. Even though your life might be going off the rails right now, your Savior and your Lord is at the right hand of the Father. He is advocating for you. He is interceding for you. He is going to make sure that you get delivered home safely. You're going to be okay, Christian. You're going to make it. And if you're not a believer here this morning, and again, you're trying to you know, just hold this more moderate kind of view of Jesus, then you're saying that all this is just a bunch of bunk. The Bible is a worthless piece of literature written by men, means nothing. That whoever Jesus was, we can't really know. And so I'm just going to form my own Jesus back in the 80s. New wave music was hitting hard in the early 80s. And I was living in Southern California, and K-Rock was the radio station you listened to if you were into new wave. Because they broke the new artists and the new music and played edgy stuff, all kinds of stuff, but there was a song that hit, oh, I forget the band now, but it was Your Own Personal Jesus, Your Own Personal Jesus. Anybody remember that song? Yes, there's a few of us. That's where so many people live with your own personal Jesus. You formed your own ideas. No, I don't, he's not God. That's too much. Oh, he's demanding that we love him more than our parents and our kids. That's crazy, that can't be right. And you, you reduce him and you emasculate him and you form him into something that's palatable and acceptable to you. Well, that is not Jesus anymore. That is an idol that you've created in your mind. 
So listen, this morning, God is calling you to get out of that irrational middle place and give your life to Christ. Give your life to Jesus. He is the message of God to humanity, spoken with clarity. And he will forgive you of your sins. He will bring you into relationship with Almighty God. And you will understand in a way that you've never understood before. We're going to pray. And I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And Lord, we love how the word of God illuminates our hearts and minds. And it's a work of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working in our midst, taking the truth and, and opening up spaces in us to understand. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm just trusting that you've spoken to some that, that have been inhabiting that middle space, like confessing that they, they really are admirers of Jesus and, and, and have tried to even live like Jesus in some ways and have been churchgoers and maybe even have considered themselves Christians, but have never surrendered their all to Christ, have never truly believed on him. They've never let go of the, of the control of their life and given control over to Jesus, the, the very meaning of Lord. And so I pray that this could be the moment when that happens, Lord. And for those who are born again, those who are your people here this morning, I pray that, God, you would continue just to fill our hearts with wonder and awe at the incarnation, God becoming a human being, living on this planet for 33 years, doing miracles, teaching extraordinary things, then dying a sacrificial death for us, rising from death, ascending into heaven, and making a way that fallen people like us, sinful people like me, could be reconciled to God. And Lord, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That we would share it freely and joyfully, Lord, with those that you bring into our life. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you are that person that you're going, you know what, I think I've been, been in that, that middle space. I'm not an atheist. Um, think I'm a Christian either. I mean, I think I believe in Jesus, but I, I don't think I've embraced him the way, the way the Bible portrays him. I don't think I embrace him the way he has portrayed himself. And I realize that this that this person, Jesus, is greater, is greater than what I've thought him to be. And that the very purpose of my existence is found in who he is as my creator and my savior. Well, listen, the good news is, is that it's only up to you to trust in him. That's, a, that's synonymous with believe. Believe in the Bible means trust. It means take a step, turn from your present 
direction of life. Repent is another Bible word for that. Turn and then turn your life over to Jesus. And he will save you. He will cleanse you. He will open your heart and mind and make you brand new. If you'd like to do that this morning, I want to pray with you. Raise your hand if that's you. And in just a moment, we will pray together. And Jesus Christ is going to become your Lord and Savior. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Raise it up. Time to get out of the middle. Maybe you have been an atheist. That's okay. But in this moment, you're going, you know what? I believe Jesus is true. Then turn your life over to him this morning. Anybody else before we pray? Bless you back here. Beautiful. Anyone else? Okay. If you raise your hand, pray this prayer. Repeat it after me and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you, that you are the Son of God. You are God the Son. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please come into my heart. Wash away all my sin. And be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's welcome those who pray. So if you've just prayed that prayer, you can join us as we transition here into our communion time where we will remember of Jesus and his sacrifice for us and we'll continue to worship him in that way. And so Paul wrote to the Corinthian church to tell them about this meal that we're about ready to take and and so he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 22, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood and body of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this instruction here was, was quite deep. It had to do with examining ourselves, being aware of, of the body, and looking forward uh, 
to the Lord Jesus' return. And we know that, that he'll return and he'll have this meal with us. And so we'll do likewise. We'll take the bread and we'll give thanks for it, remembering the Lord's sacrifice. So Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, that your body that, that hung on that tree, that body that, that became sin, that became our sin, that as God's wrath and judgment was poured out on that, that, that that's what removed our sin, Lord. So as we look to you, we praise you and thank you. It's in your name that we partake. Let's partake. And so likewise, he took the cup. And this cup represents, is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And so as often as we drink it, we remember him. And we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so we know he'll come again. We have that faith. And so Jesus, we thank you for this new covenant that's in your blood, that's based on your righteousness, your sinless life that you exchanged for our sin. So thank you, Lord, that we can now be clothed in your righteousness. And so praise you as we partake. It's in your name.